Hey everyone, it's Martin here for the latest episode of the Martin Sibby Show. Actually, it's the first time we've got a guest returning. You may remember a few episodes back, Phil featured on one of the earlier episodes in the series. So it's been nice to, to be able to have a catch up again with Phil today. But we're going to be talking about the life and particularly looking at the book around Bert Massey. And the, I guess sort of looking back on activism when he was growing up and what he achieved, but a little bit of a look to what the future might hold and what Bert would have liked to pass on from his mantle as well. So thank you for joining today anyway, Phil. No, not at all. It's uh, very nice to be invited back, actually. I'm a bit surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you did something right on the first episode, that's for sure. Oh, no, that's okay then. <laughs> I'll do my best. Cool. Sounds like a plan. So it was all, thing, all good things. We might as well start near the beginning as we were just having a chat before a lot of people are going to have heard of certainly a Bert's name and probably a lot about um, the, the work he did later in life. But I think it'd be nice to sort of start off with those earlier days. Uh, maybe if you could just talk a little bit about his impairment and also what, what society and the environment were like when he was growing up in those days as well, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really quite interesting that... Um, I first met Bert when he was the CEO at Radar. So we're talking many years ago now. And within about five minutes, I thought, this, this bloke, I know so much about this bloke and I'd only just met him. And the reason for that, it transpires, and it's in the book, is that Bert got polio when he was a baby um, back in 1947, I think it was, 47, 48. I got polio when I was a baby, but I was three. And we had this kind of shared connection. So you're asking me about his early life. One of the most fascinating bits of this book for me was right at the very beginning, he, took, he was born in Liverpool, uh, of ordinary family and a very working family. And he lived with his mum and his gran, I think his dad and whoever else. He got very, very ill. Nobody quite knew what it was, although I think his family realised it was very serious. And so they decided they didn't have time to call an ambulance. Well, in, back in 1940-whatever, you call an ambulance. First of all, you've got to find a phone box. This is pre-smartphones, Martin, you know, before you were born, this stuff. Was there ever such a time? When <laughs> sort of red phone box. And people <laughs> had to run to it. Um, but uh, emergency calls were free. Otherwise, you had to put four pence in the, in the machine. Anyway, they realised they couldn't do this quickly enough. So Granny, bless her, went out into the street and stopped a lorry, stood in front of a lorry <laughs> and sort of harangued the driver of this lorry. Can you imagine this? <laughs> and persuaded him to take her and Bert to the hospital. Um, because Bert's mum needed to look after the rest of the children. So off they sat in this, uh, in this truck, uh, arrived at the hospital in due time, and where it was obviously then diagnosed uh, that Bert had got polio, um, mm. which at the time was a really frightening and, and major, major condition. I mean, it was an epidemic type thing. So Bert was admitted to hospital where he then spent considerable amount of time, uh, unlike today where rightly so most people now go into hospital even with the most serious conditions they'll be rehabilitated home as fast as possible or at least be moved on 
in those days, it was in my own case, for example, I spent, when I got paid, I spent three years in hospital, three years. I mean, we didn't, didn't come home. And Bert describes this too, as these very long spells in hospital, which of course had massive impacts on your education. Mm. Weren't going to school, whereas everyone else was trepsing off to school as primary school children and then junior. Uh, for kids with long-term impairments back then, the chances are that you would be staying in a children's hospital, which is what happened to Bert. Yeah. So his, his early life was hospitals, uh, operations, uh, rehabilitation, splints, calipers, all that stuff that I remember very well too, because it's very similar for me. And education, which even even when administered well, was pretty inadequate, to be fair. Mm. And as you appreciate, and I know today's generation of disabled people appreciate, if our bodies aren't working the way we want them to, for whatever reason, what we do want is to have a brain that we can use. And back then, society didn't really get that. I think they just thought that um, we were dependent and would be forever, and, and that was that. So... So Bert's early life was pretty interesting. Yeah, a couple of interesting thoughts popped to my mind there. And one is um, there's been a couple of movies out more recently around um, polio in that sort of time you're talking and mm. treatments and the, the iron lung. Was that, was that one of the treatments? Yes, an iron lung. I spent six happy months in an iron lung. It was a, wow. a machine that kept you breathing. Today's um, uh, people that need that kind of support now would have a tube inserted in their throat. In those days, you were in a bed encased in a huge cylinder. And basically, the principle was that the air was sucked out of this cylinder, which forced your lungs to expand. And then there was pressure increased inside the cylinder, which forced your lungs to compress. Wow. So you sucked in and blew out. And you couldn't talk on an in-breath. So your talking was quite extraordinary. You know, you go, hello, how are you? you know? <laughs> um, but they were pretty scary things. And they weren't, you know, they were, they were in short, short demand. I mean, they were in great demand, sorry, but there weren't many of them. So, so you were lucky if you ended up in one. I, did, I don't think Bert had that pleasure. Right, okay. Yeah, well, so that's cool. Yeah. My reference was, I think it was called Breathe, was the... The, yes. the, yeah, the, yes. the sort of cover some of that. And of course, you know, innovations as well that, that came out of that time, like having the, the oxygen support that could be on um, the wheelchair and all these sort of things started to come. I mean, the, the other one, which is a massive one, and I know there's multiple day trainings on social model, but it, when you were talking about that, and it still goes on today, like there's, there's even drug treatments coming out of pharmaceuticals this week for my particular impairment of spinal muscular atrophy yeah it'd be great both what your thoughts and anything that you know from Bert, whether it be the book or the conversations of how we sort of frame the the medical input that we sometimes need but not to have the medical model and obviously be more about the the social model and pulling down the barriers of society is there anything you can can give us to chew on there phil well, I think, I think um, back in the day that Bert was um, first, you know, first hospitalised and so on, you have to remember that um, the culture at the time was that doctors were gods. No one argued with them. No one challenged them. Certainly not working class women uh, like Bert's mum or my mum. You know, now that doesn't mean to say that Bert's mum and his, his grand weren't feisty people. They were. Um, but there was a certain 
hierarchical structure which meant that doctors if they said something then you did it kind of stuff so it was very rare that um families could challenge the status quo you know you're in hospital that's where you're going to stay uh we know best i don't know that any of us saw that as oppression i think we saw that as care i think mm. we saw that as being looked after it's i think line, isn't it yeah, and I, I certainly think back in the 1940s and 50s, we were very lucky indeed to be born in a country that had a health service in the first place. So, you know, we were the first European country, certainly if not the world, to have a, a thoroughly free at point of entry uh, health service. Bert and I were both very lucky. We were born at the right time because if we'd been born five, ten years earlier and got polio, who knows what would have happened. So... So this idea that the, that the medics knew best was, was unquestioned. You, mm. you, you did what you were told. Um, I think later on, as Bert describes, there begins to be a sort of healthy debate about whether doctors actually do know right. Um, they certainly know, and this is where I think we are now, I, I, they certainly know about impairment. You know, your doctors dealing with your SMA, know a lot about SMA. Mm. What they don't know a lot about is what it's like to live with it. Yes. The doctors, I'm guessing in your case, Martin, do not have SMA. No. <laughs> they're, you know, they're very unusual. So, yeah. so I think there's this kind of lived experience versus medical practitioner conversation. Mm. And certainly that was beginning in the 60s and 70s when Bert was a young man. There was tensions already beginning to be between then called cripples, of course we were, and then physically handicapped we were. These were labels defined by other people, not necessarily defined by ourselves. And so this idea somehow that our conditions were what was important over kind of over-egged any issues about uh, self-determination, independence, and so on. Now, I'm being very general. There were clearly doctors around who who saw trying to help people become as the best they could be mm. and by medical practice to do that. You know, many of the operations I had and certainly Bert had <clears throat> were designed to help. They weren't designed to hinder. But what it meant was that <clears throat> surgery took precedence over education. Mm. So if you had to have an operation, you went into hospital, you might stay there for six months, you'd have the op and, and you, your leg would be better, but your brain was now left six months behind everybody else's because you didn't get much education in hospitals. Bert's life was full of those kinds of interruptions. So you leave school in that generation, Bert's generation and mine obviously, left school pretty poorly equipped, Bert left with no qualifications. Um, and that was not unusual. Yeah. And although it was different in those days um, to, to the generation you now work with, because back then, you know, we had big factories, there were all sorts of jobs that people could do that didn't have great qualifications. But if you were physically disabled, mm. those jobs were also very difficult. So the first job that Bert describes is lift attendant. He is working a lift. That's what he does. He sits in a lift and it goes up and down all day, and he goes up and down all day in it, and that was his job, and, and that was the level, you know, Bert was a very bright bloke, um, very clever, and yet his potential 
was to defy gravity about 70 times a day by going up and down in this lift. People, of course, couldn't drive lifts themselves. I mean, that was beyond them. <laughs> Just ridiculous. Yeah. But the green card, as it was called, which many of people listening to us, again, might not have heard of, the green card registered you as a disabled person in terms of employment, and therefore there were prescribed jobs oh, for wow. disabled people, one of which, guess what it was? Lift attendant. <laughs> so, Martin, you missed this. You could have been a fantastic lift attendant. What's the matter with you? I feel like I've missed my vacation. In life. You have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's so interesting, because I think when we, you know, we talk about that medical social model, it can end up being a bit of an all or nothing, one or the other. And, it, and I think I know when we've had chats over the years with yourself or with other people that there's a way of framing the medical needs that we may have for our impairment. Yeah. And the political side of independent living with equipment and, you know, PA support it is almost part of overcoming the barriers. But that's a different overcoming of a barrier when you're talking about educating society around prejudice and discrimination and environmental barriers but it i think throughout all of this been yours and bert growing up period and, and me now as well it's that in the end it's all about overcoming those barriers but we can't ignore the health and the sort of medical side to a degree as well no, and that's very true. And I think, I think with the, if you look at medical practitioners and medic, medicine in general, um, from a positive point of view, what they're, what they're trying to do is to get you and me the best we can be physically. Yeah. So that you're not in pain, you're not, um, your condition isn't getting worse because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. You're being looked after medically well. And that's a contract you have with your doctor and the medical team. Yeah you and they get on with that what they're getting you fit and well for is to be a fully included part of society so that's where the social model kicks in so i think in bert's case for example he left school and as a young man um as he, as physically fit as he could be given his condition mm -hmm. He had, you know, a wheelchair, he had calipers, he had walking sticks, he'd had whatever surgery he had to have. He was kind of the best he could be with polio. Mm -hmm. Now he goes out and society says, oh, hello. Oh, look at you. You walk on crutches and you've got a wheelchair. The best we can do for you, mate, is lift attendant. Well, straight away. You know, if that's what the doctor saved him for, but might have been forgiven for thinking, forget it. You know, yeah. take me back where I used to be. So I think... I think you're absolutely right. What our, our view of medicine should be, in my, well, in my view, our, our view of medicine is about getting the best we can be. Yes. Or mentally, depending on our impairment. Having sorted that, and that's our journey, that's our business, that's not someone else's business. Having done that, we then should be accommodated by society removing the barriers that still exist so in Bert's case that would be ramps it would be some form of transport got to remember back then buses all that kind of stuff trains and so on were not accessible mm. so and this became one of the great moments for Bert because Bert one of the biggest achievements of Bert's time as an activist was to get taxes and trains and so on and so forth uh, regulations through he argued incessantly about public transport being accessible because no amount of 
work was going to make him walk properly. He couldn't be expect, you know, the doctors have done their best. What we now had to do was look at the design of the bus. Yeah. And that's pure social model. So pure. how did he go from lift attendant to world-changing activists making well, buses and trains by, accessible? By a series of kind of accidents and, 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 and tough, stubborn resilience, really. Yeah. Bert acquired some qualifications he went to uh, a college and and got some you know some bits of paper to wave at people was um, it Coventry by did he go to Coventry uh it, I don't I think it was Harrywood yeah which is in Coventry yeah 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 um which obviously was designed for disabled people he had you know he was with 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 his peer group um but he came out of that experience with some qualifications I think he also had supporters, you know, Miss Lester was, a, was one of the women in his life, sort of a disablement resettlement officer who was responsible for helping people with disabilities and so on get work. So, so he, had, he had this determination, he had a family that were absolutely, um, de, de, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, were really devout about the fact that he would be somebody, he would, mm. make, he would make a good fist of it. And and Bert, of course, was a bright, intelligent man, and he had charm. He was a child. Did you ever meet Bert? No, we actually exchanged a few emails uh, more recently before he passed away, but never actually had a face to face. But even, well, you know, on the emails, he was always eager to lend lend an idea and advice and everything. Yeah, Bert was a, was was a charming guy. He he had a great sense of humour. Um, he could be very funny. Uh, he sometimes was a bit sometimes over the top with his humour, which you. He occasionally said things he shouldn't have said, but but his 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 general default position was to be helpful to people, mm-hmm. and I think that when he started out on his career, and this is me saying this, it's not necessarily what the book is saying. Um, Bert understood that in order to get what you needed to get, you had to understand the other person's point of view. He, he, he became a, a good negotiator. He understood. Yeah. So if there were barriers in his way, he would understand why the person opposite him was having trouble. Mm-hmm. So he would kind of, in a sense, so part M of the building regulations before, before they were around, uh, accessible housing, all that kind of, like buildings and offices and all that kind of stuff, just, well, they were inaccessible. Part M of the building regulations was about making things accessible. Bert had a lot to do with the conversations around that. And the way he did it was to, to understand what the problems were from the other side, acknowledge them, come up with solutions, which then were irresistible. Because if, you, if, I, if I say to you, look, I understand your concerns, but if I can overcome them, would we have an agreement? And yeah. you say, yes. Well, all I've now got to do is overcome your concerns and we've got an agreement. And Bert kind of worked like that. Yeah. He was never, he was never an ad, he was never a, a, um, an activist who was angry with people. Yeah. He was an activist who smiled while he tried to, to get you to see it from his point of view. He was very yeah. good at that. I think when we talk about the social model again, there is that, you know, disabled by barriers of society, it can sound, I'm not saying it's meant this way, but it can sound quite accusatory to those people like you're just talking about, for example, in the, you know, the, doing the architecture and the regulations for buildings. But when actually you're kind of still going on that principle that 
that that is what's disabling people like us. In the end, if you're giving them the fact that they didn't understand that they were doing that, they're not doing it maliciously, really, is my point. Yes. They have their own reasons that it's more tricky than you imagine. Yeah, you can see that the win-win's always going to win out. Yes, I mean, if if you're talking to the Minister of Transport, as they were called, about the fact that buses and taxis were not accessible, then Bert understood intuitively that that wasn't the personal fault of the Minister of Transport in front of him. You know, these buses have been designed for 50 years. So it was whoever thought about it 50 years ago. There was that kind of process. So he he became very skilled. Um, I mean, there's these um, moments where he, he, he was a very good negotiator. He, one time when he was at college, he used to visit the local fish and chip shop. This is in the book. He visits the local fish and chip shop on behalf of the others. I think he had an invalid carriage at this point. So he'd go down to the village, to the fish and chip shop. And he'd order, I don't know, let's say a dozen fish and chips. And because it was an order of a dozen, he would get his free. So he negotiated that he would get <laughs> free. He did things like that. You know, he was, he was, uh, it, that, that was the beginnings, I think, of him. Uh, when he moved to Radar, it was, it was called then the Royal Association for Disability and Rehabilitation. That was the, the organisation. It was the umbrella body for many other organisations. And Bert became, he went there first as a member of staff and then became the CEO eventually. And once that happened, he was in a position now with some serious clout behind him because clearly, although Radar, we'll, we'll perhaps talk about this in a minute, Radar was not flavour of the month with many disabled people in the 1970s sort of and 80s. But nonetheless... Radar was doing things with Bert's kind of guidance that were really important. You know, the access committees of England were part of Radar. They were, look, they were the ones that were looking at accessibility of buildings, pure social model stuff, but nobody talked about it like that. Yeah. And of course, Bert was um, working for an organisation whose patron was the Queen Mum at the time, which didn't kind of make it sound very radical you know, when you're looking at the British Council of Organisations of Disabled People that came along in the sort of 80s. This was Jane Campbell, was it? Was that well, the... Jane was one of that group, yes, yeah. there were many, many others. And, and they were the kind of, they were the group that began to really focus pure attention on disability rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very, very anti uh, a lot of the establishment charities, one of which yeah. was Radar. Uh, so Bert had a, a kind of interesting time of trying somehow to steer a path through um, the really radical uh, uh, lines that Jane and others were taking and at the same time delivering what Radar was trying to do at the same time which was they had the ear of government they were able to talk to senior politicians and And you need both don't you if you look at any civil rights movement you need the, the angrier group that really can get the media attention and just rile up people but then in the end the change is going to come from the meetings around the policy or the legislation and knowing how that all works but looking back it feels like you in the very beginning at least you need both to get things well and i think i think i agree with that i think i agree with your analysis and i've always been tending to be more on a on the burt side of that i've never been very good at chaining myself to railings and stuff but I really do appreciate the efforts that those who chain themselves to railings 
are making because they are focusing. And Jane Campbell and uh, there was Dan, Disability Action Network was yeah. the activist wing. You know, that they, they would chain themselves to a moving train if they had to. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. And what that did, of course, was it frightened the establishment on one hand. They didn't want these demonstrations, very embarrassing. Mm. But it focused real attention on the disparity between non-disabled and disabled people and how we could or could not be included and stuff like that. Mm. And I think although there were some serious arguments between the sort of radar, if you like, and the activist Dan's and so on and so forth, they never really ever agreed. But there was clearly for government at least, there was an organisation they could go and talk to, and that was Radar and, and their real. And obviously I'm not forgetting that back then we had organisations like the Spastic Society, as it was called, and, uh, you know, Mind and Mencap, and these RNRB, RNID, the big six kind of thing, and Radar were part of that. So I think Disability Action Network, the BCODP, uh, on one side of this equation and the establishment groups on the other, but being one of that group, managed to negotiate and get government to finally agree. 13 attempts um, from the Second World War until the DDA was passed in 95. There were yeah. 13 attempts at getting mm -hmm. legislation. And I think it's fair to say that the, the more activists were very unhappy with the legislation, didn't like it at all, Very felt it was medical model and the definition of disability was medical and so on and so forth. The other side of that equation uh, were more pragmatic and said, we have got legislation now, we have got protection, mm. not perfect, but we can do something about it. And as it's now famously known after that, Bert became the chair and the only chair because the DRC was disbanded when the Equality and Human Rights Commission came into being. But Bert became chair of the DRC, where I think he and the that and interestingly, of course, Jane became a commissioner. You know, there were the coming together of some of the great names at that time yeah. made that organization very powerful. Yeah, yeah. So I mean you've definitely covered on a couple of Bert's achievements, but before we sort of move to the, you know, maybe what Bert would like everyone watching and listening yeah. to, to take forward, do you think there was any other, um, you know, events or achievements to note of, of through his career? I think I I think about Bert. My my, um, I, I I think accessible transport was was one of the big things for him. I think uh, one of the big things, I think there was his, his also the whole role that he and Radar played in accessible accessibility of buildings, part of the building regs and those kinds of things was another yeah. um, big, big issues at that time. Because, you know, looking at it now, we think of buildings as being routinely, you know, you, no one would buy a bus now that a wheelchair user couldn't get on. Mm. Back then, there were no buses at all yeah. was you know some of them would have got another 25 years to run before they'd be taken out of service so i think those were big big things there, there are many others but those are the two that i personally think about when i think about but yeah yeah and i think you know going through my life obviously there's been barriers and you know there's another generation below me that are still facing barriers but i think when we look over decades there's definitely been 
an improvement with the physical environment particularly i think probably that the where we're at now feels like it's a bit more around the attitude side so you know when we're looking at education and employment we, we've maybe got more transport to get there and the buildings are a bit more accessible than they once were but it's actually the policies and the attitudes that are still disabling people today i don't know what you think about that i think that's true and i think it's also important to to remember that the time we're talking about the buses trains and all that stuff mm. there was very little conversation uh, amongst in the movement about neurodiversity and mm. mental health and those kinds of things yeah i mean people knew about these of course they did i mean mind was part of the big six and debates and stuff but mental health was kind of somewhere over there people with mental health issues didn't care about buildings and buses but their their whole reason for campaigning was about their ostracization the fact they were just completely ignored or mm. uh, people thought you know all sorts of weird things about them um for me and you you know, if they put a ramp in and made a bus accessible, these were big things. People could celebrate them. They could cut blue ribbons in front of buildings and stuff. But the neurodiverse communities hadn't really. And I think, to be fair, I don't remember back in the 80s and 90s, huge discussion. It was much more physical disability that was holding sway. And I think now, your generation and those coming, neurodiversity is a much bigger issue, and rightly so. Yeah, and so there are maybe some newer issues or challenges that, that are being a bit more embraced, certainly by disabled people as a movement and, and gradually by society. When I sort of look, I, I you know came out the blocks all excited and passionate about trying to make a difference with all the new fandangled ideas, but it was only when I actually read about yourself from Bert and Jane, started to have actual conversations as well, that those insights of what what worked and what didn't work are still massively useful i think for campaigners that are just starting out now but obviously there are then some strategies and tools that differ like the rise in social media being you know the smartphone yeah, yeah. that we touched upon earlier yeah. and that's obviously a new newer landscape in that way but for me i know i started getting a lot more traction in my career when i was able to learn from the, the battles, if you like, that had gone on before and, and, to, and to appreciate that as well. And I think that's what's been great to talk about Bert's life is that it's, he's done so much that people don't even realise that a younger what had to go on, you know, to make that happen and it's good to celebrate it. But yeah, what, what do you think Bert's sort of um, pass on advice would be to, to people like myself trying to keep moving things forward? I think... Um, I think one of the things that he was very disappointed about uh, was the uh, demise of the DRC and the lack of, I don't know, uh, lack of movement, it would appear, from the EHRC, Equality and Human Rights Commission, in terms of disability, because he, he was on it, he resigned, so did Jane Campbell. There were many of the the people at the time who stood down from that because they just felt that it was it wasn't achieving anything so i think bert was was uh, I, I think to the day he died i think he he felt there needed to be he always felt that disability somehow was different from other strands of equality and now you know with intersectionality and all these things where we think about you know us as not just disabled people but as men as women as gay straight and all these mm -hmm. other things 
older and younger, look at me and you, you know. Um, these things really matter. It really matters. And, and if we're going to talk about these in a powerful way as a collective, we need to have some kind of voice that does that. And, and, and I don't think the charities cut it, if I'm honest. And I've been chair of charities and I have great respect for them. But the commission was, after a shaky start in a year or two, where people thought, oh, what's this all about? I think most people, by the time the commission wound up, felt really, really impressed by what they'd done. And I think Bert felt the job hadn't been finished. There was still huge amounts to be done. They'd hardly scratched the surface. So if he was here as part of this conversation, I'm almost certain he would be saying to someone like yourself, we need to find a way of ensuring that disabled people's voices are heard in a way where there is some serious kind of weight behind it i.e. it's got some power the commission had power mm. it could do stuff the charities bless them don't have that kind of power you know they could prosecute people they could take people before uh, courts and tribunals um, and they advise government on policy and law and things so um, you know the commission had and it and it, it wasn't around long enough that's what that, that's how it felt now we've got the EHRC now and the people on it I know some of them particularly around the disability committee work and stuff they're doing a great job but it's it's not it's not visible enough I think I don't know how much you know about the work of the EHRC in well, there you are you're shaking your head that tells me all I need to know if I'd said to you back in the day when the DRC was around, you probably would have heard of something they'd been at. You know, they were campaigning about um, inclusive education. They were campaigning about all sorts of stuff. We don't hear that from the HRC. So I think Bert would be sad by that. I think he'd be saddened by that. I think, I think he's a bit like me, actually. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Um, I don't know how much longer I've got. But the idea that it would have been great to have been born now with all the stuff you've got, you know, all the tech and the social media you touched on, the ability to campaign using social media is phenomenal. Well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because I think sometimes people think because they've liked or shared or even commented on a post, that's activism, but it's not, it, you know, it, it can be used as a tool for activism, but just liking something that, you know, like an article that talks about barriers isn't actually going to shift the needle. So I think no. there needs to be a, a better look at how those tools can actually create change and impact. And I'd be interested what you think about, so obviously the DRC had power just in terms of, you know, ability to have policy influence and, and even to take people to court. What, but was any of the power because they had the sort of backing or a community of disabled people nearby it to give those voices of what's going on yeah i mean for a start the drc of course had some of the leading voices in the land in it mm. or on it so mm. people like jane campbell was a commissioner and bert himself of course was, was leading it there were some phenomenally important people as commissioners mm. many of the staff were disabled people many of them had come from backgrounds like radar liz sace who yeah. you know became uh, Chief Exec of Radar and then Disability Rights UK and is now, you know, doing work at the LSE on employment and stuff like that. She was one of the major leads on policy, the DRC. There were some very talented, very um, experienced 
people working there. Now, what they did very well was they went out and consulted with people. They did seek the views of the big six. They did seek the views of smaller organizations. Mm -hmm. They tried to do their very best to make sure that they were talking to everybody before they then came out with some kind of idea. So it, was, it wasn't democratic in that sense, but it was, they were very consultative. They didn't just come up with something and go for it. They did mm. talk to lots of people about it. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, as you know, my, my brain's always whirring, so I've got a lot to chew on here on a very personal level with the work I'm doing on Horizons, but I'm sure the people watching and listening are all going to be taken away, seeing whether they're a blogger or a campaigner or whatever it is they might be up to, or maybe a student, and it's sort of something that, they're going to come to a bit more in a year or two but mm. um yeah it was really really nice we said earlier just to to get a bit of an input of what Bert's life was like particularly those younger years um mm. you know that i i managed to get the book on amazon which i'm planning to read when i'm on my holiday in july um so if anyone wants to get hold of it i know it's on amazon are, are you aware of any other places phil where it's on no um i i'm not actually i've uh, i was i was given a review copy so i'm feeling very very on just a shame Bert hasn't signed it really because yeah. it wasn't finished when he died it wasn't completely finished Bob Niven and Anne Fry have rewritten the well finished the book off with the last chapter or two um but no I think on, uh, uh, certainly on Amazon I'm not sure if it's an audible book either or you know we, we I should have checked this out before we spoke but yeah um, I'll have a look and pop something on yeah. the copy anyway it's a, it's a good read and and for people interested in how how things came about um, and it's only obviously it's Bert's view of the world which is mm. you know, and he was right in the middle of it so he he has he has some interesting things to say about the EHRC which I'll let your listeners and watchers decide to read about. I like that we'll, we'll end on a cliffhanger as you say he was a right character with a good sense of humour. Yes he was. So, all right well thank you for your time as always Phil. It was a really Not at all. It's been a pleasure Martin. Cool we'll catch you soon mate. Yeah take care.